Disclaimer. This episode is full of obscenities and is probably not safe for work. Additionally, it contains words relating to sexual identity that may be offensive to some. All this vocabulary is not included gratuitously, but reflects the usage of the podcast's subject, Phoenicia Madrano, a trans woman with a mouth like a sailor. You've been warned. Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. You're listening to the interview podcast, Voices for Nature and Peace, where we discuss issues of ecology, empire, justice, and consciousness. We feature a variety of guests who are aware of the challenges of our time and who are working to address them. Here's your host, Calibri Ter Sonnenblum. with a cause, remembering Felicia Medrano. In this special edition of Voices for Nature and Peace, I speak with six people who knew Felicia Medrano, also known as Finn, also known as Tranny Granny. Finn died on April 3rd, 2020 in Nevada, so this release marks the first anniversary. Finn was a well-known, or rather notorious, personality in rewilding, wild-tending, and primitive skills circles. Her name was both praised and cursed, but even her critics had to acknowledge her experience and knowledge when it came to Native American first foods and how to cultivate them in the wild. She spent about three decades in the western United States, much of it on horseback, getting to know these special plants and their ecosystems. Though of Irish background herself, she had been taught by Shoshone grandmothers in her youth. She often spoke of the hoop which is an ancient migratory tradition of food gathering and cultivation that sustained Native Americans, and the land itself, in good health for thousands of years until it was violently disrupted by the European invasion. The hoop is not dead, but is severely threatened, and Finn played an important part in not letting it die yet. Unafraid of controversy, and passionate to the core, she offended many. I myself was on her blacklist once, but I didn't take it personally. What else can you expect from such a feral creature, so thoroughly discontented with civilization? After all, when we respect what we call tact, we usually end up being silent about our collective crimes like genocide and ecocide, and Finn wasn't interested in doing that. Some people were offended by her verbal crudity, but her fierce advocacy for wild tending was not only appropriate, but vitally essential. Please note that tranny granny is a term of affection, not a slur having been bestowed upon her by radical fairies. Finn underwent sex reassignment surgery, as it was then called, to transition from male to female in her younger days before being introduced to the hoop. The radical fairies are a queer movement dating from the 70s who have been variously described as neo-pagan, countercultural, anti-establishment, anarchist, and radically environmentalist, and so their nickname for her carries no malice whatsoever. This presentation is not intended to be an exhaustive account of Phoenicia and her work, nor did I attempt to interview a set of people who would provide a, quote, balanced view. That is, I did not talk to any of her haters. But none of the people you're about to hear from were blind to her characteristics, and the picture that emerges here could certainly not be described as fawning. And you know what? Finn, or Granny, as she always was to me, wouldn't have respected a suck-up job anyway. This episode is structured around a set of six questions that I asked each person I interviewed. They are 1. How did you meet Finn? 2. How would you describe Finn to someone who never met her? 3. What did Finn do? That is, what was Finn's work about? 4. Describe a time you experienced friction or tension with Finn. 5. Can you sum up Finn's message to the world? 6. Do you have a memory of the last time you saw Finn or communicated with her? The people I interviewed are Gabe, Joanna Pocock, Josh, Nikki Hill, Rain, and Sada. And I thank all of them for their time and for sharing their recollections and opinions. I truly enjoyed talking to each of them. 
If you appreciate this episode, please share it on social media and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. To support this work financially, you can make a one-time donation to username Colibri at paypal.me or venmo.com. That's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. You can also become a member at my Patreon account and get early access to new episodes, plus other exclusive content at patreon.com slash colibri. To follow my work in general, and to check out my books and scenes, visit my blog, Maxka Moksha Press, at M-A-C-S-K-A-M-O-K-S-H-A dot com. The background music you're hearing is by Dr. Dreamchip, an electronic music artist in Portland, Oregon. See show notes for how to follow their work. Thanks very much for listening today, and I hope you enjoy Rebel with a Cause, Remembering Phoenicia Madrano. Question 1. How did you meet Finn? I met Granny in the year 2012. At the time, Nikki Hill and I had been farming in Oregon's Willamette Valley, but our land leasing arrangement had turned sour, so we took the season off to travel. At the top of Nikki's list was visiting Granny, whom she had met a few years previously and had been wanting to see again. It was August when we arrived at Granny's current squat, northeast of Klamath Falls in eastern Oregon. The land is a mix of ranch land, pine plantations, and tableland, interspersed with a few winding creeks and marshy spots. Drought conditions were prevailing there, as they were over a majority of the continental United States at the time. The haze of forest fires first blurred and then entirely concealed the hills on the horizon. Sunrises and sunsets were awesome displays of orange and red, apocalyptic. When I first moved to the Pacific Northwest in the year 2001, I was so impressed by all the beautiful forests. But after I became involved with the tree-sitting campaigns and learned how to really look at the landscape, I saw what was actually there plantations of uniform trees, second or third growth, mature trees left only along the road to conceal the clear cuts behind them, entire horizon-to-horizon vistas of managed landscapes with only tiny islands of old growth struggling to survive. A land not pristine, but hammered. It was this type of revelation, but of the steppe country, grasslands, and pine forests of eastern Oregon, that I was seeking by going to see Granny. Granny took us up onto the table first, because I said I wanted to meet Yampa, one of the native first foods. The table is a mesa. It is a flat area elevated above the surrounding grasslands, with steep sides that are broken occasionally by draws, that are tree-filled ravines running down to the bottom. On the top, it is rocky and dusty, crisscrossed by a few rutted roads, with hills rising still further up along its northern edges. She stopped the jeep and jumped out, announcing that we had arrived at a Yampa patch, and that this was the time of year to gather a seed. At first I saw nothing but dried vegetation, undistinguished. We gathered around her as she showed us a yampa plant right next to the road, about 18 inches high, with no apparent leaves, and three or four umbrella-like crowns of seed. Each seed, of which there were about 5,100 per head, were about the size and shape of a caraway seed. Indeed, another name for yampa is wild caraway. Granny demonstrated how easily the dried brown seed fell from the umbels when it was fully mature, but clings, plump and yellow-green, when it is still developing. I tasted the seed, and it was delicious, much like caraway, but with an extra zing. At first I stayed right there, crouched down, examining the plants right around me, and ate quite a few seeds at the different stages, until my stomach gurgled with liveliness from the very strong essential oils so characteristic of seeds in the umbel family. See also fennel and dill. Nikki and I spent five days there with Granny before continuing our travels, and it was one of the most intense five days of my life, honestly. I wrote not one, or even two, but three essays inspired by the experience. Had I never seen her again after that, the marks she left on my outlook and my consciousness would have been indelible. As it turned out, it was the beginning of a relationship that would last for over seven years until her death. To this day, she and the things she taught me come into my head on a regular basis. I'm sure I will always be grateful for our meeting. I go by Josh or Joshua. I met Finn through uh, our mutual friend, Nikki. She first told me about Phoenicia, I think, around the Riverhouse time. So that would have been maybe 2009 or 10. And so it was. she told me, she gave me the lowdown. She said, hey, there's this person you might really be interested in meeting. She's a 
she she does or she's involved with what she calls the Shoshone hoop. And um, and then she kind of told me what that was, like a semi-nomadic horse-based uh, tending of the wild gardens of the Great Basin of the West. And I was like, what now? Didn't quite get it at first, but I was intrigued. And uh, I don't I don't know if I did much <clears throat> research or tracking down Finn before I actually met her, which was in the late summer of 2012. I had been uh, working at a farm on the Oregon coast, North Oregon coast, Manzanita and Halem area. And I was done with that gig. And so uh, I got a hold of Finn and she's like, oh yeah, baby, you need to come on down. You need to uh, get your ass to Deadwood. First of all, uh, Alex and uh, Chelsea, that's a pony. She was going by Chelsea then. We'll give you a ride, baby. They're, they're going to be at some kind of little hippie festival thing. You need to get your ass down there and, and they'll get you a ride. And so I was like, uh, okay. And that actually led to my first hitchhiking experience. And pretty much only. I don't think I ever really hitchhiked. I hitchhiked all the way down the 101, which wasn't too bad. I was I was able to get some rides. And then uh, once I got to Florence, that's when the rides dried up. And I kind of had to walk on this on this connector road to on the way to, you know, between Florence and Eugene is where Deadwood is. And then I finally, I, I got there. And I was... And then I was I was um, visiting a commune there, Alpha Farm, uh, just because I needed a place to crash while they were doing their thing up the road. And then finally, three days later, I was like, "Guys, you are you gonna give me a ride? Right? You're not gonna leave me here." <laughs> so they, I rode all the way back with Alex, with Alex and Chelsea to Beatty, and that's where I first met Finn there, and down at what they call Sand Crane. So it's like South Central Oregon by by what uh, Finnisha calls the Tableland. The Knotland, a big um, area where there's lots of uh, yampa and wild onion and garlic and other other biscuit roots too. That was my first time meeting Finn. So my name is Rain. Uh, my pronouns are they them. Uh, I am generally based out of Northern California. I am a community organizer and activist and um, a wild tender of, of sorts in various ways and um, a, an artist and medicine maker in many things. And this, I love to tell the story of how I met Finn. It was pretty serendipitous. I learned about Finn for the first time shortly before I met her in person. Um, and in another way, you could say that I was kind of looking for her most of my life. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I heard about her from a friend who was just passing through who had a copy of her book. And I got to look at it for just a second, but not actually read it. Um, and this friend was also a fellow trans person. So I was first hearing about her as a trans elder, mm -hmm. um, as well as all the phenomenal things that most people um, focus on about her as, as a wild tender and a living legend. But I, I met her in person for the first time at the Saskatoon uh, Circle Primitive Skills Gathering in Washington in the summer of 2017. And... I knew she was an elder and a, a magic person. And so I took my time in um, actually approaching her and, and speaking to her for the first time. I was around her for a couple of days before I actually introduced myself or spoke to her directly, really. Um, and our mutual friends, uh, a couple of whom had lived with her on the hoop before, um, all thought that we were going to hate each other. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh Finn later told me that her first impression of me was that I was a dorky dyke who was going to lecture her about not being PC enough. <laughs> and I told her, well, you're not entirely wrong. Um <laughs> but like I said, I, I I took my time in in actually approaching her and, and talking to her and um for, for a couple days, I witnessed several young people approach her with this in sort of entitlement to her wisdom, um, multiple people coming up to her and asking her to just give them information and um, 
not a single one of them offering her any gifts in return or really approaching her like an elder. And the, the story that the part of the story that I, that I really always tell, this is how she won my heart and um, in a manner of speaking, saved my life um, is that this young man came up to her and asked her one day, Finn, where's the best hoop in the country? And she said, the most abundant wild food garden left in North America is downwind from the Hanford plant. And those plants are being poisoned every day and they desperately need humans to help them migrate. And he said, oh, where's the second best hoop in the country? (laughs) (laughs) And I can't remember her exact words there, but she said something about how the earth was dying. And he said, well, how long do we have? And she said, 10 to 15 years. And he said, well, if the earth is dying and we only have 10 to 15 years, then what's the point? Why dig the yampa? Why plant the biscuit root? And she looked at him deadly serious and said, for your own goddamn conscience. Yep. (laughs) And that was really the thing. That was the moment. And I've told that story like over and over again to people who I know who have been in a moment of hopelessness, because I think that that's um, something that we all feel to some degree, whether we know how to put it in words or name it or understand it, that there's this hopelessness and helplessness about the state that we were born into and now live in um, the state of the world. And um and that was that was that thing that I had been desperate for for a very long time, really, that I didn't I didn't know for a long time is what I was looking for. Why do anything right for your own goddamn conscience? Because it's the right thing to do because it's not about you. Right. <laughs> but anyway, after that, after that moment, um, <laughs> the, the point where I, I really introduced myself to her and got to know her was um, this this accident of fate one evening where a bunch of folks were hanging out and everybody else had stuff to do and babies to put to bed and other people were going to come with us they said but nobody else ended up showing up so it ended up being just me and Finn sharing this moment where she had a chair to sit in and I didn't so I ended up literally sitting at her feet and um, peeling her biscuit roots while she just talked at me and she told me stories and she told me about the truth and the hoop and she told me about the traumas of her life and you know she let out her rage and her tears and I don't think I ever hung out with Finn um, without seeing her cry Mm -hmm. you know that was um, that was that was part of my introduction to her too was just that way that she was so open and honest and and that included her you know real emotions um but i sat at her feet and listened to her and peeled her biscuit roots until it was too dark to see the roots anymore and then she went to bed and yeah and so from there i followed her around <laughs> quite a bit <laughs> Well, my name is Gabe, and I met Finn indirectly through my own research on traditional ecological knowledge and native food plants. I've been really into foraging and these foods for a long time, and then kind of through that, I actually got this impulse to look up modern day nomadism. Just this was like four years ago, maybe even five. And when I typed in modern day nomads, the uh, Vice article about Finn and the return and with Adrian Chester and all them came up and I learned about them years ago and then kind of forgot about it. And then in the meantime, I was doing a lot of research on just like wild foods and plant foods and foraging and then um that came back up and then I started realizing what it was about and 
how genius and how like duh all of it was, you know, just reciprocity and planting back. And, and so I started to really want to meet Finn. I started doing, looking them up and befriended her on Facebook. And then I met her officially at Buffalo bridge a couple of years ago uh, for the tribal Buffalo hunt in right outside of Yellowstone in Gardner, Montana. And then we hit it off pretty quick there. Like in 2017 or something. Uh, I think it might've been 2019, 2018 or 2019. Okay. Cause the summer that you were knocking around with her, that we ran into each other was uh summer 2019. Yep. Yeah. And it was that winter that I met her. Oh, okay. So you had just met, met her. her in the flesh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. My time with Finn has been actually pretty uh, short and thorough and sweet. It's been like a very condensed time. You know, I didn't know her for years. I knew about her for a few years but I didn't know her in the flesh and actually spend like a ton of accumulative time with her. But I, the time I did get to spend with her was very immersive and intense. (laughs) So I'm Joanna Pocock and I first heard about Phoenicia from Joshua Dodds in 2015. I was visiting Buffalo Bridge and he he could tell that I was really interested in the idea of planting seeds and um, looking at how people in the American West, I'm not from the American West, were um, stewarding land. And he said, well, if you're really interested in this stuff, you have to meet Phoenicia. And I remember I couldn't hear what he was calling her. And he like spelt out her name for me and I wrote it in my diary. And then when I got home, I was living in Missoula at the time. When I got home, I looked her up on Facebook and I connected with her on Facebook. That was in, yeah, two th- winter of 2015. So that was just how you met her virtually, but then how'd you meet her in person? Right. So in person. So once I tracked her down, she invited me to come out and meet with her. She was in French Glen, Oregon. Hmm. And that would have been, I guess, for a summer of 2016. And it was her last time really being nomadic. And um, she was with Michael Ridge at the time, and they they'd had a bit of an altercation, and we're talking about going their separate ways. And she was very she was very warm, very welcoming with me. And I was with my husband and my daughter, and I didn't really know what to expect. And um, she was she couldn't have been nicer, really. Yeah, amazingly. <laughs> yeah, some people might be surprised to hear that. But I guess, you know, she had moments where she was, quote, on her best behavior. Right. 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 So when you met her there, which, did she still have the horses or? She still had her horses. And uh, it was interesting because I'd read her book in advance of meeting her, um, Living in Occupied America. And um, I think that's what it's called, isn't it? Yes. Living, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Growing up, growing up in occupied America. Mm-hmm. That's it. Growing up in occupied America. So you know, I had a bit of sort of background on her, and I, and I I brought the book with me, and I scribbled in the margins, and I thought it would be a good kind of because um, I didn't really know what to expect, and I thought having her book would give me a sort of springboard, so I could ask her questions. So. For people who don't know, I'm a writer and I wanted to, I thought I would probably write something about her, but I didn't really know what, I never really know what I'm going to write about until I start writing about it. But I try and just sort of feed myself with subjects I'm interested in and then things come out. And so I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was very, very honest with her about that. And I think one of the reasons she was, she was incredibly kind to my daughter, who was eight at the time. And very patient. She seemed to really connect with kids, which was kind of, I don't know why that surprised me, but it sort of did. And she was really nice to my husband. She even said to me, your husband, he's, he's a keeper. And like, <laughs> wow, like, she, yeah, she's really. And, um, and I think a part of it was because, you know, there's no sort of sense of competition. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not someone who lives out there and I'm not planting seeds. And, and I get the feeling that it's almost like she's, harder on people who are doing things that kind of aligned with what she was doing. And because, you know, I came from England or I'm originally from Canada and I'm not from the West and I'm not living nomadically. 
So in a way, she, I think her kind of criticism, sort of her criticism lens, sort of fell away somehow. My name is Sada, and I met Phoenicia around the year 2005 when I was uh, 19 years old, and I was uh, I had just moved to the Radical Fairy Sanctuary in Southern Oregon, and she was coming there um, as a guest of one of the Shoshone elders, Clyde Hall, who had invited her to come and be sort of the designated coyote kind of trickster during this ceremony that he would preside over, that he offered um, the ghost dance ceremony to this community that I was living in. And she actually, when I met her, she wasn't coming to the ceremony specifically. She was coming to basically just rile us all up and talk with us. I think she was passing through on one of her trips to gather camas, I believe. And she was trying to um, kind of recruit. She started, I guess, originally she had decided that she was just going to kind of carry the bundle that she had um, alone. And then it was through Clyde that she decided to start opening it up to fairies first. And then she started slowly opening it up to other people. But yeah, so she came to the land and she she would come on she would come and just start kind of shouting. Like as soon as she got there, she'd be shouting and um kind of talking this especially when I met her, she didn't really talk like normal conversation at all. So it was all this sort of I used to call it prophecy speak because she was sort of talking almost like a preacher, but in this very kind of um <laughs> It was kind of like a combination between religious uh, preaching and sort of psychobabble, but also it had this certain kind of coherence and it was very poetic. And she was, she would kind of pick people out and connect with them. And I remember she was really excited because I was at the time really into permaculture and learning about native plants but I didn't really understand wild tending yet. And she started kind of explaining it to me in this very poetic way and was showing me maps of Idaho. And she was trying to explain to me that I needed to come there and how the way that I would find her is I would go to the town where she was based, which was Arco, Idaho, and ask the cops where she was because the cops <laughs> always know where she is. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there thinking like, who the fuck is this like not only was she dressed in her beautiful buckskins that were also very dirty and she smelled like urine and and smoke and and all this and she was like pounding her drum and singing all these songs and crying and laughing and but she was i was so captivated by her and my boyfriend at the time who i was living with he was like oh i knew you was because he met her before i met her and he was like oh i knew you would be obsessed with her as soon as you <laughs> And then I wouldn't say I was obsessed right away. I was intrigued and kind of scared of her. And then we ended up, um, basically, some of my fairy friends ended up going and living with her. Specifically, JP was the one who lived with her the most. So, some of the other ones, like Spider, were visiting her um, and Buck and Greg. But, um, yeah, JP was the one who really dedicated about a year and a half to live with her. and. And then he rejected her completely. And I kind of took a little bit more of a slow path and would visit her for little stints, like a couple weeks or a month here and there. And then little by little kind of became closer and closer. So I'd heard her talk about opening the bundle and being told by Shoshone elders to do so. So that was Clyde. Yeah, I mean... I heard her say different people at different times, but Clyde would be the one who was the most instrumental, I would say, um, in my understanding, because she had other teachers in the past who had maybe encouraged her to open it in one way or another. But I think she was, they weren't convincing enough and she was really convinced that people were um, going to just exploit it somehow or ruin it and, and also to a degree that people didn't deserve it. So 
Yeah, so she she actually her the story she told me was that Clyde Hall told her she, that it was time, you know, according to some of the prophecies mm. that they both learned from Clyde's auntie, who was also Phoenicia's one of Phoenicia's teachers, oh, um, Emma Dan. Okay. Yeah, her name was Emma Dan, and she taught Phoenicia a lot of the root stuff, but she taught Clyde a lot of the. My understanding is a lot of the ghost dance stuff, and I can't really speak for Clyde because I'm not super close with him, but that's just what I've come to learn over the years and um yeah so so Clyde basically had some stories about these prophecies and he really believed in the two spirits like the the queer kind of Native American traditions and how working with the queer community in general especially the kind of radical fairies who were more into you know queer spirituality and stuff that these people might be instrumental or important part of kind of bringing back some of the old traditions. And this is what apparently I've heard um, Dan was telling Phoenicia and telling Clyde. So he really implored Phoenicia, it's time for you to start opening this up. You can't just keep it to yourself or, you know, it's a responsibility because at this point, you know, Emma Dan was dead. So, um, so yeah, Phoenicia, she said for about two months, she was plotting a way to murder Clyde um, <laughs> and trying to figure out how she could do it without getting caught. And then she had some kind of epiphany, which she never really explained in great detail, but she said then she just kind of flipped and realized, no, that he was absolutely right and that this was the only way to move forward. And so she went to Naraya and that's where she first started opening it up and teaching it to people. Right, the Naraya dance. But that was the Utah. Yeah, the Naraya dance. And that was in Utah was the first one she went to. And then Wolf Creek in Oregon was the second one. My name is Nikki Hill. I also could go by uh, Little Nutter or uh, Tumbleweed or Wind Witch. These are three names we've been playing around with, uh, with Finn and other people. Oh, I first met Finn in like 2009. I had gone down to the Wolf Creek Radical Fairy Sanctuary. I had a friend living there at the time. And I went for a um, Shoshone Dance of Intention that was open to people to go to. Um, And she was there along with about a couple hundred other people. So yeah, I first met her there. She was just kind of this gregarious and loud presence, and um, I was just attracted to her in different ways I didn't quite understand yet. Uh, So there was a kind of like a blanket fair where people would lay out blankets with stuff to sell and to trade. And I went over and sat with her. Uh, She was there with a few other people. Everybody was dressed in these bright tie-dyed shirts that said pulling for wildflowers on them bright tie-dyed shirts and um, buckskin clothing and they had a bunch of like rusty objects set out to sell like stuff that looked like they pulled out of the ditch like a really beat up bicycle some rebar digging sticks uh yeah some other things just everything metal and rusty is kind of what i remember (laughs) So I went went and sat with them for a little while, and Finn just starts in talking to me about some scheme she's got. And the scheme was that we're trying to make a little bit of money so that they could continue pulling for wildflowers, which was planting these wild foods back. And uh, the deal was was that she was going to whore me out. So we'd be advertising the Passing Johns. I'd be like, I was five bucks, I think. And then I'd supposed to go off with the John, but she told me not to worry because uh, Michaela over there, Cougar, thinks she was going by. She would follow us, me and the John. She'd beat him over the head. I don't got to do nothing, but we still get the five bucks. So this was my first real conversation with Phoenicia. I remember my, my friend who lived at the sanctuary at the time, he was, he was kind of looking at my enamoredness with this being, and uh, he just kind of looked at me and smiled and was shaking his head like, really, that one? <laughs> yeah. 
And did she hang out with her at that event for a little while longer? Oh yeah, she wasn't really in the in the circle that I can remember with us. I'm sure she was at times, but um, she's kind of always on the outside of it. She had brought a bunch of uh, roots there with the other people who were hanging out with her at the time for the Spirit Fest um, on the last day. So they were doing a lot of preparation for that. They had a camp going where they were cooking camas and some other roots, but I remember the camas. Um, so... Yeah, I was in and out, hanging out with her. Not a lot of personal time, but there was a couple of fairies that left and uh, accidentally hit a deer, a doe, and they came back to camp with the doe, and um, I helped her and some other people carry it into the trees, and she showed us how to skin it and treat everything very well, get all of the meat off of there in a good way, and some prayers and stuff like that, so... That was a part of my introduction with her, too, hanging out. She also was honored at that event uh, with a new name. It was Woman with Fire in Her Heart. And um, I remember she just was, like, bawling with um, gratefulness, it seemed like, for being recognized. Yeah, so those are the things I remember about the first meeting her. Question two. How would you describe Finn to someone who never met her? Granny was of Irish extraction, of people she called carrot-headed, fat-cheeked, pus-gutted son-of-a-bitches, but was adopted into Native American culture in her youth. The tribal grandmothers became her grandmothers and gave her much knowledge and perspective. She followed the hoop for nearly three decades, on land both private and public, over several states, and watched as what little remains of the native food plants and of the native rights to harvest and plant them suffered an ongoing assault. She was one of a handful of people keeping the practice alive, only some of whom were sharing their knowledge. Longhouse says it's time to open the bundles, she said when I met her in 2012. Not everyone is opening their bundles, but I am, and that's why I'm showing you these things. Granny was one of the most profane people I've ever met. Though four-letter words were constantly streaming from her lips, her delight in using them never seemed to diminish. This was one of her filters. People who didn't like cursing wouldn't stick around, and if that's all it would take, she wouldn't want them around anyway. Granny had the personality of a cult leader, magnetic and domineering, captivating and manipulative, seductive and egotistical. She would draw you in with flattery one minute, seeming empathy the next, and connivance after that. Her sincerity and her deviousness were partners in a constant dance with her audience, and I often couldn't tell which of the two had just grabbed me to give me a dip or a twirl. Perhaps the distinction between the two was not clear to Granny either, and perhaps the distinction wasn't important. Perhaps we can say that she was both sincerely devious and deviously sincere. Regardless, the goal was the same, to get you on her side. What exactly that entailed was not always clear, and was certainly not written in stone, but from Granny's standpoint, it was her against the world. So your choice was clear. You are here with her? or with Babylon, as she called it, by which she meant civilization. Seemingly no one could measure up to her standards, at least not for very long. But in a way, that also didn't matter. She would tolerate your presence anyway, at least for a while. After all, what choice did she have? One day in the summer of 2012, when describing what it was like working with the young people who came around to meet her, she said, It's like sifting through human garbage. And while that's awfully abrasive, she also had deep compassion for them. They have no idea what's been taken from them, she said more than once, with tears in her eyes. Here she was referring to how much beauty in the world had been snuffed out before they were even born. I could only take Granny in small doses, a few days here and there, the endless monologue that went on virtually uninterrupted from the time she got up until the time she went to bed was a bit much for me, and I recognized it as a typical cult tactic. When your own thoughts are constantly drowned out, you become easier to manipulate. This was one of many things she did where I was never clear how much she knew what she was doing, how much was old habit, and how much of it was just unconscious. I don't mean to be harsh. I loved Granny. She was one of the most special people I've ever met. If I were to rank the most influential people in my life, she would be in the top five for sure. More importantly, if the world had more people like her, it would be a different place, and a much better place. We shouldn't be comfortable with the mess we're making, and Granny didn't want to let anyone do that. Okay, for this, I wrote I wrote a little piece, kind of a little spoken word piece, because I thought, I was like, huh, how would I describe her? And then it just kind of came out. Here it goes. 
Phoenicia was a badass bitch, poor yet rich, and that which feeds life in a culture of death. Natural as the breath which steams the air when the mountain morning dawns cold and fair. Granny had wits and wiles, that tongue tangled and cut, like the wicked wire wound upon the rotting posts which marks the malice of the hungry ghosts. She could flay you raw and leave you numb, show you out as the entitled child of empire you are, and tell you why all your reasons to continue in the madness of motherfuckery are utterly insane jabber, not worthy of the breath it would take to shake some sense into your addled, rattled brain. Granny didn't give a shit about your feelings. She could care less if you would curse or bless, sob or shriek, redneck or freak. She planted many seeds. Where the pine meets the sage, she'd say, grinning like some wild-eyed acolyte, high on something few now know, beyond the bounds of those meager lands left to those whose ancestors first arose here on Turtle Island, long before longitude was fixed and all the tricks and trinkets were unleashed like some beast Babylon. She knew all your favorite lies by heart. She said it is not enough to hate the lies. You must learn to love the truth. Sweet upon the tongue, yet bitter in the belly. She was a saddle tramp with style, selling back their bag of shit with a smile all the while. She was an outlaw in an age of compliance, a mad Irish poet and an Indian nightmare. Phoenicia was a badass bitch, poor yet rich. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking awesome. That's her. That is. Yeah, that's her. Yeah, you captured her. Yep, yep. That's great. Yeah, I love this question because because I ended up doing that quite a bit in the time that I knew her when she was alive. And to some degree, it depends on who I'm talking to mm-hmm. in the context. Um, but there's certain things that I would always say. And I would often start by saying that um, Finn was a white trans woman who dedicated her life to propagating indigenous first food plants and did so um, for over 30 years of her life, living full-time nomadically on horseback and in a literal covered wagon, and that she was coyote, mm-hmm. and in, in beautiful and terrifying ways. And she uh, was one of the most vulgar people you'd ever meet. <laughs> And I'm not sure if you're going to bleep things out for this, but... No, you can use whatever words you want. Yeah. Yeah. If we're talking about Finn, you got to swear a little bit. As many four-letter words as you need. If it was somebody who was actually going to meet Finn, I would definitely tell them she's one of the most vulgar people you'll ever meet. And at some point, she's going to tell you you're a motherfucker. And she means it literally. Mm -hmm. And, um, And she will tell almost everybody that they're a motherfucker because almost everybody is. (laughs) and um she was a master hustler yeah and part of the reason that she was so good at it was because she was hustling the truth with a capital t and she was full of love that people often saw as a rage she was she had a rage that was born of a deep deep love for life and the truth And she would make people uncomfortable by exposing them to the truth. She would make most people uncomfortable and and she's probably going to offend you at some point. (laughs) And she kind of hazed people a little bit. She would kind of push you on purpose and see where your edges were and see if you were willing to, to bend and open and stretch. And a lot of people saw her in that, that vulgar, angry way, but she was also incredibly loving and could be very soft and sweet and gentle, especially with plant people. <laughs> and she was incredibly knowledgeable and she could talk in many different worlds in many different languages. She could speak in ways that were not verbal and she could share things in, you know, traditional indigenous languages that um, she spent a lot of her life in what we now call the Great Basin area and could speak in, in, in ways that Shoshone might speak or Paiute might speak. And she could also put people in check with Latin scientific names and, you know, uh, climate science and all these things that sometimes people didn't expect out of her. Because to a lot of people on the outside, she looked like 
somewhere between, you know, a flower hippie and a crazy old redneck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she was those things too. And she was a living legend that is now only a legend. And she was my elder and my friend. And she was my elder in the truest sense of the word. And the only one that I've ever known in my life that I would really give that name to. But uh, yeah, I would, I would warn people about her because I, I felt like if people had a little bit of a warning, they might actually be more open to hearing her mm-hmm. instead of just being shocked by those vulgar, that vulgar language, you know, she was like the Zen teacher that smacks you over the head with a stick to make sure you're, you know, staying upright. And sometimes she'll smack you over the head with the stick, even when you're, you are upright, you know, <laughs> but she was also radically anti-capitalist and a beautiful bum and really more than anyone else I've ever met in my life. She really embodied her values in every way. And the thing that, that I would always say when I was describing her to people who'd never met her was there is no one in the world like Phoenicia Madrano. And now that's really, really true now that she's gone. That is a good question. It, it, well, it, it, that's a long question because when I do talk to people about Finn and try to describe her to them when they have no reference or idea, I it's kind of, it takes a while because I'm like, there's a lot to this person and it's not just like a simple person to describe. But I usually describe Finn as a, a mixed bag, you know, as one of the most uh, generous and kind and absolutely one of the most funny human beings I've ever met who was a genius. In my mind, I saw Finn as a mad genius and who was really onto something incredible, but who at the same time was so traumatized and walked around with, walked and through the world with so much pain that they were also really just fucking crazy, you know, because Finn and I try to explain this in the best way because I was like, Finn was both at the same time. She was like the funnest, the best, the coolest, and also like the craziest and scariest and one of the hardest people to be around, but also one of the funnest people to be around that was always pushing the edges of your, you know, comfortability. And so, yeah, when I, when I describe Finn to people who have never met her, I always kind of say, well, yeah, Finn was a mixed bag. She was all of it. She was an amalgamation of all of like the best and most beautiful and also some of the most like, intense and painful qualities of of humans you know because she held so much and she walked with a lot of pain in her heart which i think really informed a lot of her behavior that a lot of people would find pretty questionable but uh, she was also so sweet and kind and uh generous and in so many ways and was just a walking compendium of so much ecological knowledge because she just lived with the land in such an intimate way for some times. She really spoke from experience and uh, knew some incredible, incredible things about the landscapes that she's had a lot of experience on, you know. First of all, I would say she was irreverent and mischievous, uh, wildly intelligent, very knowledgeable, hilarious. I mean, she could make me laugh like nothing else. Um, Edgy. And uh, I would say she was very generous, certainly with me, and and, um, a a visionary. I, I always thought of her as kind of someone who could just see things, you know, that a lot of people couldn't see. Yeah, I definitely found her to be the the, the same way. Yeah, and, and in terms of being a visionary, um, people use that term 
to mean seeing the present well, but they also sometimes use that term to mean um, sort of peeking into the future. Yeah, definitely. And I, I found for me, I found her poetry really kind of revelatory. I, and like you say, I sort of feel like she could, you know, had had her sort of finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, shit that's going down environmentally, ecologically, even socially. And, uh, you know, I remember her laughing and she's, you know, she was saying to me once, you know, I, I'm going to be um, living in my cave. I'll be, you know, I'll be fine when the superstorms come and you, you, all you ecocidal whores of Babylon, you know, you got, you're going to be like drowning in the oceans as they, as the sea rises and I'll be laughing at you all from my cave, you know, and that sort of image just really stayed with me of, um, you know, the kind of catastrophe that we might be heading for environmentally but also i f- feel she was able to tap into a sort of past as well she kind of had this incredible perspective yeah it's a good it's a good one i mean i <laughs> definitely i had these really long monologues because i went through many years where i would bring new people out and i was trying to prepare them because she's a lot of different things and the first thing that I would say is that she's really beautiful in a very kind of uh, unconventional unkempt kind of wild sort of way Mm -hmm. Um, she was very like dirty and eventually over the years that I knew her, her face became quite a bit more wrinkled from being in the sun and in the weather all the time. And she was, you know, smoky and she, in the beginning, she didn't smoke at all. She was pretty much straight edge. Um, I mean, she would sometimes dabble with psychedelics, but um, she was really, she was really pretty straight edge and she would actually go up to people and take the cigarettes out of their mouths Um Oh, wow. and, and yeah, she was like aggressively anti-smoking. And then um, it wasn't very long after the fairies started coming out that she started picking up smoking, I think partly from them, but also partly because she just became so agitated with all of us. So at first <laughs> I would describe her as being kind of almost like a, like a John the Baptist sort of archetype where she's like wandering through the desert, kind of like speaking in prophecies and, and like poetic and, and crying and laughing and all that kind of stuff. And then little by little, she became more and more angry and more and more impatient, more and more frustrated. And that was something that I would tell people too, is like, you got to really watch out because Venetia will really jump down your throat and you have to be, you know, if you want to learn from her, you have to really be prepared to sort of put your ego aside and let her just kind of call you out and, and just learn that it's not really, there's no point in arguing, even if it's not true, even if you disagree, because she's so convicted about her beliefs and her truth and what she sees. And a lot of the time she was seeing a lot of truth. Like she was mm-hmm. seeing through people. She was calling things out that were really pretty on point, you know? And that was one thing I loved about her. She really was like, uh, I would say like a seer, you know, she would see through people and she would see truths that people were really uncomfortable with. And she wouldn't have any uh, reservations about just blowing it up, you know, <laughs> but, um, but then there were times where she was really off and, or where, you know, her version of reality was just hers, but she believed that it was like absolutely hundred percent true. And, and she would attack people. And so I always warned people, you know, you never know what could happen. And she had, she had been physically abusive sometimes to me and other people that were around. So I was always trying to make sure people knew they were stepping into a potentially volatile relationship. Um, But overall, I would say she's a coyote. I mean, through and through, like really not only um, in my opinion, but everywhere we traveled, uh, I went to many reservations with her and people would just, without even really knowing her, they would recognize her as coyote and they would just come up and say like, hi coyote. Or most of the time they would actually avoid her and come and talk to some of us, like the people who are traveling with her and kind of wait for her to be distracted or wait for her to be kind of off doing something else. And then they'd come up to us and they'd be like, Oh, what are you doing with coyote? Or like sometimes bring offerings 
to give to Coyote, but not directly. And they would say it was anonymous. They would give us food or sometimes little things like somebody came and gave us a grinding stone one time. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really a trip traveling with her and all the places that I saw being with her were really, um, they were things I didn't even know I was prepared. I didn't, I didn't, I guess I don't know how to say this. Traveling with Phoenicia was, took me to worlds that I didn't know existed. I mean, I had vague notions, you know, I knew, I knew that there were other cultures and, you know, I I grew up in a multicultural family, but the kinds of realities, like the sort of dream time that she would take us into and the sort of like otherworldly experiences that we would have, um, they were a little bit shocking. So that was something else that I would tell people is that she really is sort of like an, a, a being who lives between worlds. And she had this way of kind of bridging the worlds. And also just like Coyote was, was very creative and, and had a lot of beautiful things to teach us, but it was also really destructive and had a lot of ways of fucking with people's heads and um, kind of manipulating people. And eventually I realized that her behavioral patterns, even though I have such great respect for her, that she really does match the diagnosis of a sociopath. And I don't really like conventional psychological diagnosis. So I wouldn't ever say, oh, Phoenicia's a sociopath. But some of those um, characteristics really match her patterns of behavior. And it's useful to know just like, okay, you're dealing with somebody who's like, has no no reservations about manipulating you for her purpose, which in a lot of ways was kind of amazing and really altruistic, but also people got really hurt in the mix. So yeah, it was a really, it was really mixed bag, but she's beautiful. I mean, she's riding her horses across the whole great basin um, and her, and her covered wagon at first and then later just on horses, pack horses. And, um, and then sometimes on foot and, and her way that she understood the land and the way that she would tell stories and the way that she would um, relate with, with the people did have this really profound kind of ancient beauty to it that I think is really pretty, pretty rare. I've never met and I don't expect to meet anybody like her ever again. Finn was like, a real rebel with a cause. <laughs> the cause part seemed to stay pretty steady, but I think that she just like wasn't afraid of anything appearing to be authority. Um, she could see all of the stuff that seemed to be like, uh, I don't know, bad or ill-intentioned in the world and she could see it in herself too and made some choices along the way to kind of go the other way so I don't know she's just a true rebel I mean I guess I don't really know how to describe her in some way other than to talk about part of her journey you know she was a transgender person (laughs) uh, in a time where maybe that wasn't such a big part of the conversation and the culture And, um, she lived with horses for like 30 years, I think full time, traveling back and forth across the country in modern day. So like taking the horses on highways and through little towns and making friends along the way. But maybe, yeah, how would you sum it up? It was like she was the most crass and pinpointing personality with a depth of generosity at the same time that I hadn't really seen in somebody else to be able to hold both of those things so much to be able to really cut through to get to the point of kind of um, unspoken or unacknowledged um, reasons for why we do things or behave the way we do like, she's, she's really pretty good at reading people. Well, not in every moment, you know. But she was good about reading patterns and pointing them out. So she kind of liked to push buttons, but the button pushing was kind of to try to untie some knots. So 
This is the end of part one of Rebel with a Cause, Remembering Phoenicia Medrano. Two parts remain.